Hey friends, welcome to Waterworks Podcast number 12, our second episode in season two, which is all about evil and spiritual warfare. Today, I interview Pastor Doug Hammock, who is the pastor of the North Raleigh Community Church. He's also an author and has written a book entitled Rethinking Our Story, Can We Still Be Christian in the Quantum Era? One of the things that I feel it's important to start with before we get into the understandings of evil and spiritual warfare is to talk about how we see God. What images, what metaphors do we have of God and how do they impact our spiritual journey? So this podcast is a great one for a worldview explanation of God how worldview influences our understanding of God. And through that, we talk about these metaphors that we have for God, historically, currently, and everywhere in between. We also talk about what happens when our metaphors break down into darkness, into nothingness. And we talked about what we do when that happens. I had the privilege of interviewing Doug when two of my colleagues and I went down to spend the day with him and his church people, learning about how they do church, what's important to them, and how they're growing faith through the four spiritual practices of learning, service, community, and contemplation have influenced their lives as well as the lives of those around them. It was an honor to be with Doug and his team at NRCC They are incredibly hospitable, and if you happen to live in the Raleigh community of North Carolina, I really encourage you to check them out. They're a beautiful group of people doing some really great things and exploring truly what it means to be Christian in the 21st century. Blessed listening and enjoy. Welcome to the Waterworks Podcast. Today on our episode, I am here with Doug Hammock, who is the pastor of the North Raleigh Community Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome, Doug. Well, thank you. Um, So, as always, we pretty much are going to jump right in. So, Doug, why don't you tell us about yourself, um, how you got to Raleigh, and, and what you're doing here in the North Raleigh community? Well, I was uh, a college minister in California at a great big church uh, for years, and I started seeing a trend that we were losing access to young people, and so it kind of started me on a process of rethinking how it is that we live the Christian life, how it is that we tell the Christian story, how it is that we be church, and so in the process of doing that kind of rethinking, it came time for me to uh, leave LA. We came here to Raleigh to start a church and we've been working fundamentally on two questions. What does it mean to be Christian? The corollary question to that is, can we still be Christian? And then what does it mean to be church? And so that's what we've been working on. Hmm. And so you have a building you rent. We had a building. You had a building. And then I wrote a book. And then our denomination said, yeah, we don't think you belong here anymore. Mm -hmm. And so our church voted to come along with me. And so we were 
both orphaned and homeless at one time. And so uh, this the, the church here, Temple Baptist Church, uh, is a very large campus and a small congregation. And so they invited us to use the back half of their congregation. So this is where we meet now. Okay. Well, great. Um, so today what we're going to be talking about is God as metaphor and what that looks like and the beauty of the Judeo-Christian history is that God has been metaphor essentially since the very beginning and those metaphors have changed. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, I was listening to I think a, a Rob cast, a mm -hmm. Rob Bell podcast and Pete Rollins was the guest and he was saying how um, in the Old Testament especially there's all these different names for God, right. you know, Jehovah Rapha, you know, the Lord is my banner, all these different things. And it was actually a way of keeping God from being tied down in our own concreteness or desire to have certainty. Mm -hmm. um, but as you write about in your book, which is retelling the story, rethinking our rethinking story, our story. Mm -hmm. and you can get that where any um, good books are sold. <laughs> Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> well, that's where good books are sold. Yeah, comes on Kindle. I've got it on Kindle. Um, about how the Enlightenment really changed the way that people thought about things, about the scientific method. And mm -hmm. as a former engineer, you know, this, well, this is how this works. Yeah. You, you have a hypothesis. So going to seminary for me was very strange. Because they said that you could change your hypothesis if mm -hmm. the if the research that you found wasn't supportive of your hypothesis, then you could change it. And I was that went against everything in my being mm -hmm. as a you know as a science person. But then I was like, ooh, that's kind of freeing. Mm -hmm. I think I'll roll with this. You know, so there's all these different things in our history that lead us to where we're at now in this time of quantum mechanics changing the way that we look at life the enlightenment requiring certainty and through the enlightenment we've i'll say settled for lack of a better word on god as father you know judge judge king king you know all of these male yeah all mm. of these things so what would you speak to that a little bit yeah it really goes to worldview in the high Middle Ages, we were grappling with a world that um, was fundamentally unknown because uh, we, would, <clears throat> we would lose our wives in childbirth without knowing anything about the circulatory system. We would lose our crops without knowing anything about microorganisms. We would lose, you know, lightning would strike without knowing anything about protons or electrons. Um, and you get enough of those unknowns, and pretty soon you develop a worldview that not only is it unknown, it's unknowable. And so we developed an idea about the world based on that view. And so since governance is one of those unknowns, we have to have God's appointed person do the governing. So we had kings. Since we don't know about something as complex as economic distribution and production, we have to have someone handle that for us, God's appointed feudal Lord. So we had feudalism, we had monarchy. And then the kind of modern worldview started with the scientific method where all of a sudden we realized that, hey, we can figure this stuff out. We can figure out the circulatory system. We can figure out 
how crops die. We can, we can dissect bodies. We can find things out. And so it didn't just change science, it changed the view that we had of reality. And so if something was unknown, we began to assume that it was just unknown as yet, that there was unknown, but there wasn't really anything that was unknowable. We were just waiting until we did know it. And so there was a time in which our God was the, we called the God of the gaps, the parts that we don't understand about the universe. We just said, well, that's God. But as long as that was our God, God just kept getting smaller and smaller because the gaps started getting smaller and smaller. And so when we came into this scientific view of the world era, we began to uh, develop ideas about the Bible, that it was a source from which we would get our certitude. And we developed ideas about God in which, which were fixed and certain. And so... Whereas before there had been multiple ways of thinking about God, we would still acknowledge those multiple ways, but really God kind of got more and more constrained to fit in this box. And so that became the, the God that we inherited, the God that was fixed and then the God that was certain because our Bible was fixed and certain because our world was fixed and certain. And so the thing is, it was, uh, it was a perfect match between religion and worldview. And so for 450 years after the Reformation, the Christian church just went gangbusters. It went great. We kind of took over the known world and telling our story of God who is this way and not that way. God who does this and does not do this. God who likes this and God who doesn't like that. God who honors these people and dishonors those people. And it's all very fixed all very certain, all very comfortable. So during that time, we started writing systematic theology books. <clears throat> and in a systematic theology book, the table of contents is always the same. The introduction says why our theology is better than yours. <laughs> then section one is the doctrine of God. Section two, the doctrine of Christ. Section three, the doctrine of human nature. Section four, the doctrine of sin and salvation. And section five, the doctrine of the afterlife. And in section one, the doctrine of God, chapter one is the transcendence of God or the ineffability of God, the God, the uncontainable nature of God, God who doesn't fit in any thought that we can think. And goodness sakes, if you read through the Bible, you can't but see that our tradition says that's the case. So we write chapter one in section one and we give honor to that tradition. But then chapter two comes along and says, now God is ineffable, which means God is unchangeable. Chapter three says some other feature of God. Chapter four or five, now we begin to say that same thing. God is this way. God isn't this way. God does this, doesn't do that. This is the way it works. This is the way it doesn't work. And from chapter, section one, chapter two, all the way through to the end of the book, we discount section one, chapter one. Because that's what fit in our worldview. Mm -hmm. If it's uncertain, it's only uncertain as yet. So we couldn't live with the dissonance of a worldview that called for certitude and a religion that called for mystery. Mm -hmm. So it, rather than live with the dissonance, we just gave lip service to the parts that didn't fit. And then we just developed a religion that was that way. Mm -hmm. Which again, went along quite nicely until Niels Bohr comes up with the idea of an atom that isn't solid or a table that's only appears to be solid, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And Einstein comes up with the theory that 
truth is relative to where you're standing when you experience it. And Heisenberg comes up with the theory that uncertainty isn't just yet, it's fixed, it's built into the system. So now, you know, 100 years later, those views of reality have crept into our popular understanding that's transcended just how we do physics or how we do science. It's crept into the way that we do the world. And so now we uh, are losing a religion. Our Christian faith is being abandoned in record numbers for several reasons, one of which is it is so tied to that whole generation in which things went so well for us when our religion was a fixed certitude affair. So now is the time, I think, when we human beings, Western human beings, we Christians in particular, are rediscovering what's always been ours, which is the idea of mystery. And one of the primary ways we discover that is the way that we think about God. When God was one way, we realize, oh, God can also be another way. And this uh, description of God is effective, and this description of God is effective. And these two seemingly mutually, ex mutually exclusive ways of talking about God can both speak to a dimension of experience of the divine. So we begin to have different ways of approaching it now. That reminds me, in for my commissioning project for deacons orders, we had to do a Bible study and um, and a church to world project. And my church to world project ended up being a Bible study, and it was on the names of God. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did like six. I picked it six different ones from you know scripture, and I've used that in different locations in different ministry settings since then. And one of the things that I've asked people, you know, because I used Emmanuel, God with us, and along with that Prince of Peace, mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, so people, how can God be called Prince of Peace? But then if you look at the Psalms, most of the Psalms talk about God as your strong tower, your refuge, your you know, fortress, your defender. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile these things? Yeah. And it's amazing to see the abject horror on <laughs> some people's faces where mm -hmm. they're like, oh wait, those things are just diametrically opposed in my brain. Mm -hmm. They can't they can't both be true. Yeah. And I'm like, but what if they are? You know, that that kind of thing of So our brains didn't used to work that way. <laughs> That's why the abject terror. Yeah. Our brains used to think that if A is true, well then not A must by definition be not true. Mm -hmm. But now, if my clock is going tick, 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 and you're on a spaceship going that way really fast, your clock goes tick, 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 and my clock is true. And your clock is, oh my lord, it's also true. <laughs> so now if A is true, not A, oh, might also be true. Mm -hmm. Well. That's started to filter from this rarefied air of physics into our just common understanding about the nature of things. So now the idea that God is bigger than can be contained in any one of our metaphors, it's time again. It's been time, but it's time again for us to have a God that can be both fortress and prince of peace. God that can be both uh, demanding justice and demanding mercy. And you know, the God that is never containable, mm -hmm. 
but we can use metaphors to point to a sliver of experience of the divine, yes, that's ours. It's our heritage, and now we kind of desperately need it to work in this new worldview. So there's two metaphors that you talk about that I would like you to unpack a little bit more mm -hmm. for us. The first is universal mind, because mm -hmm. that was a big transition within your church community right. when you decided to go from the mind of Christ to universal mind. Mm -hmm. And then also God as song. Mm -hmm. So choose which one you want to go with first. <laughs> well, let's talk about God as song first. Okay. Um, so in my own life, God was at one time, uh, a, a very meaningful metaphor of God was God as king. And I viewed myself as a knight. And so if God is shaped like a king, then I had to shape myself to be a loyal subject. And so I was obedient and I was loyal and I was committed and I was all the things that a knight would be to a king. And so that was very helpful for me. It was very um, inspiring for me. It was motivating for me. It was a good way for me in my youth to marshal my energies to serve this royal figure of the divine. And so I did a lot of really good stuff. I went out there to do what I thought the king wanted done. I went out and served the world. I went out and was noble and honorable and all the things that one would do for a king. And I would never want to take that metaphor from my children because at a time in my life that was so powerful. But like all metaphors, it broke down for me after a while. I can say about one of my children when they're growing up that they're a tiger. And if I say they're a tiger and I mean that they're fierce and they're going after their objectives, and well, that's a great metaphor to help understand what they're doing. But if I put them in a cage and feed them raw meat, then it stops being a very helpful way of talking about my children. <laughs> and so uh, all metaphors break down eventually. And the metaphor of God as king broke down, as did God as father, as did God as judge, as did at one time I saw God as my coach. And I was the one out there performing on the field with God kind of helping me succeed. Each one of these, and to be honest, a lot of the, the human configured mm -hmm. metaphors for God begin to break down over time for me. And so I began to explore other metaphors. And uh, it turns out that our own tradition, as well as other traditions, have looked to the Greek elements, the look God as water, or God as fire, or God as wind or air, and God as earth. And uh, so... At one t so it became very helpful for me to think of God as uh, the ground of being. I think I ran into that with Thomas Merton. And, uh, and you were speaking about systematic theology. In August this year, I decided to get Paul Tillich's mm -hmm. systematic theology. And mm -hmm. I read the first one, and he talks a lot about ground of being yeah. and what that is. Yeah. And so to, to find myself rooted in, drawing resource from, never separable separable from the earth that uh, that idea of configuring myself as plant to dirt <laughs> mm -hmm. 
that opened a very different set of ways to relate to the divine. And one of those that I hit on along the way was uh, was the idea that God could be song. I think there's a passage where God sings the earth into being, and there is a there's just there's a few scattered references to God using musical metaphors. But if God is song, well, if God is human, like just a great big version of a human, a, a bigger version, a, a perfect version of king or father or whatever, then I shape myself accordingly. And but if God is um, song, then I think of what is the what is the downbeat of this song? What is the rhythm of this song? And if it is as we Galatians tells us love and joy and peace and patience. And if that rhythm is present everywhere, if that rhythm is moving, it changes a set of questions that I ask about how do I relate to and how do I experience God. If God is my father, when a bad thing happens, I have to ask, where was my father when the bad thing happened? If God is father, I have to ask, is God neglectful? Or is God not powerful enough because I am dying over here in this horrible thing? And if I was father and this was my child, this borders on neglect. You know, this borders on criminal neglect. And so God's horrible if my metaphor of God is father because he's just really not holding up his fatherly duties. Well, that's really shaped by the configuration that I put myself in to relate to that metaphor of God. But if on the other hand, God is this rhythm, this downbeat, this song, now when a horrible thing happens to me, the question changes. It doesn't become, why is the song not present for me? Because the song is present in everything, in the good times and the bad times, in the hard times and the easy times. Now the question becomes, will I dance or will I not dance? Will I move to the rhythm of love in the midst of my heartache? Will I move to the rhythm, rhythm of peace in my suffering? Do I pursue this dance even when times are difficult and when times are wonderful? Do I dance with this song? And so different metaphors of God produce different spiritual journeys different ways of configuring ourselves, different questions we ask. You know, there is this truism out there that we find what we look for. Depending upon how I am looking, I will find. If I'm looking for God as Father, I can find that. Or I can find all kinds of evidence to the contrary that that's God. If I'm looking for God as song, then I'm going to configure myself accordingly, and I'm going to look for this or that. And... Uh, so that's one of the metaphors that became helpful over time when I lost God, the human, the superhuman human, mm -hmm. when I lost those ways of thinking about God. I think probably one of the more difficult parts of this was just the idea that we don't have access to the divine. Mm -hmm. We just have access to metaphors about the divine. We have slivers, we have pointers, we have directionality, we have clues, but we don't have access to that. I think that was probably more emotionally difficult because I liked my fixed truth universe. <laughs> I liked the world in which if A was true and I had it, 
I was superior in every way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liked that world. <laughs> so it was, it was challenging to lose the world, but once I did, a whole different, a, a much broader spectrum opened up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's something to be said for walking in the dark yeah. in some ways. And, you know, recently our power went off for, you know, half an hour mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning. It was so peculiar. It's like, there's nothing happening. Mm-hmm. It's sun shining out. Why, you know, why don't we have power? But I couldn't get ready, you know, to do what I wanted to do the day, for the day mm-hmm. because of the power. And so I was, I was still, I had to be still and sit and be like, hmm, what is, what are the implications of this for me in my day today? Right. Which is kind of what you're talking about with God and metaphor. It's like, okay, well, if this is breaking down, what are the implications of this? Well, if I had a choice, I would never walk in darkness. (laughs) (laughs) If I had a choice, I would always be in the light. Mm -hmm. If I had a choice, uh, things would always be certain and I would always be in the right. Mm -hmm. But since that's not really a viable option in the earth, uh, the idea that mystery is baked right into this tradition of ours the idea that there is a way to configure ourselves in the darkness, the idea that there are spiritual practices that are informed by the inevitable times of darkness, that's, um, it gives a directionality to life. It says, mm-hmm. here is, here's how you walk when the unknown is the only thing you can access. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's how you walk when darkness is the only thing that you can access. And, uh, and that's, precious. Mm -hmm. A couple years ago, I was going through my own, I'll say, release of God as father slash king. Mm -hmm. And my spiritual direction supervisor, who I was talking about this with, he asked such an interesting question. He said, well, what if you just don't have a metaphor? Or just, you know, Mm -hmm. what if you just let it all go? Mm -hmm. And when he asked me that question, it was like, you know, a thousand pound weight came off my shoulders. Mm. Like, oh, I don't, I don't have to be able to explain this thing that is so unknowable. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the same time, I think as people, we feel this kind of compulsion to be, to explain it, or to at least try and explain our experience in some way. Right. You know, so again, there's that tension. We are storytelling beings. Yeah. And we need a story. We need a story, yeah. yeah. And so for a couple of years, I didn't have a story of, you know, that part of God that I used to call Father mm-hmm. and still refer to God as that only because, you know, that's what my community understands right. at this point. But so when yeah. I was first learning um, about contemplative practice in our tradition, um, the after Vatican II, the, the Pope assigned the Trappist to restore contemplative mm-hmm. practice to our tradition. And one uh, author wrote a lot of books on centering prayer, um, Thomas Keating. Mm-hmm. And one of his books, he said something that just, I had to puzzle through for so long, I could not understand what this guy was talking about. But he said, uh, God's primary language is silence, mm-hmm. and everything else is a poor translation. <laughs> yeah. And fixed in my world as I was, 
that was really challenging for me. In hindsight, I look back and I think, oh, that's, I would probably never have come up with those words to explain what became my experience. Mm -hmm. But those were great words to describe my experience. When, when the loss of metaphor and the loss of voice and, you know, in the Ignatian tradition, we talk about consolation being lost as desolation. Mm -hmm. When you're in the time and all you have is darkness, well, hey, if God's primary language is silence, it'll do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. The darkness is okay. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be afraid of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, to get back to the original question of metaphors, most of our metaphors are very positive. You know, I think um, the path of illumination and the path of loss, you know, all of those things speak to, but there's also a time in which darkness is baked into this reality of our spiritual lives. And so to have language for that and, you know, to speak of the dark night of the soul and to speak of walking by faith, you know, instead of sight, you know, the times when things are being purged from us and taken from us. There is this whole group of metaphors for the divine that speak to that part of the spiritual journey as well. Mm -hmm. I happen to be someone who loves the idea of fire mm -hmm. and, and God as fire in part as mm -hmm. how God works in our lives. So, yeah, I've I've just always liked that in terms of, you know, there's a song by, I think, Tim Hughes, Consuming mm -hmm. Fire, mm -hmm. Fan Into Flame. Mm -hmm. I've always liked that. But at the same time, that is scary for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to be nothing then. Or, right. yeah. So my, the metaphors that I typically embrace, I think generally scare off people. <laughs> I, I'm like, oh yeah, you know. Consuming fire, darkness, nothing. <laughs> People are like, you need to calm down. <laughs> Bring back some light to this. I'm like, eh, maybe not. Well, but I think the, the folks who gathered in our community have been disillusioned by church or else they wouldn't come here, you know, because we're trying to rethink this spiritual journey. And part of that disillusionment is with Clearly, we Christians have behaved badly. There's yeah. good reason to be disillusioned with the Christian church in general. But part of that disillusionment comes with hitting the part of the journey that is about deconstructing everything that we once knew. Um, hitting that stage of the faith journey where dark night of the soul is a good description, where everything that was once comforting and illuminating and warming and comforting is kind of stripped away. And when that happens, uh, a dearth of metaphors to describe it is actually very harmful because we assume that what we have now is just loss. We don't assume that there is something precious in the darkness. There is something precious in the dark night. We don't assume that there is something precious to be had in these, you know, purging everything out of us ways of thinking about God. And so... A consuming fire or a, uh, you know, darkness or silence, you know, these <laughs> things, that's not good Yeah. <laughs> until you get there where that's a lifeline. That mm -hmm. is what you need in those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, as you were talking, I, I remember sitting with my spiritual director 
five, six years ago. And, you know, she was like, Karen, it sounds like you're just kind of sitting in a cave and the cave is dark and you can't find your way. And you're just generally angry and upset. Is there any way that you can hold hope? And I said, no, I don't, I don't think there is. And she said, well, Karen, I will hold hope for you until you can take it back again. And I think as part of our deconstruction and, and changing metaphors and shifting metaphors is having someone in our lives to be that support. Yeah. And, and I, I would not be you know, who I am without my spiritual director being there for me you know, in, in that way, very much in particular. Because um, I didn't, I personally didn't think I had anyone else I could really talk to about it. Um, my prayer partner was going through the same thing at the same time. <laughs> so we, yeah, we were both just being laid to waste, which felt like by God. And it's really hard to, to go to a church and worship and praise God for being king or father or provider when you feel like you're just being thrashed with, you know, all kind of stuff. So yeah, the metaphor is also well, is important and and timely and yet not always helpful. It's a blessing to be part of a tradition of spiritual direction where your hope can be held mm -hmm. by someone when you are in the time of great deconstruction. Yeah. I didn't have that experience. Mm -hmm. I went through it in many ways alone. Uh, one thing I did do is I made myself stay engaged with mm -hmm. the spiritual community. I went to church on Sundays. And I was just pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I was so yeah. angry. They were singing songs, and th this church, they raised their hands when they sang, and you know there was this expression of joy and this expression mm -hmm. of life and vitality and promise and hope. And I just I jammed my hands into my pockets, and I scowled, and I was angry, and I thought, this is just drivel and you know who could believe this crap and you know mm -hmm. I had this horrible experience and the people loved me they loved me dearly and they tried their best to um, bring comfort to this depressed seminarian and uh, mm -hmm. but their answers were just come over to where it's light their answer wasn't um, Sit in the darkness and yeah. get used to it. There was no, yeah. there was, they, their toolbox was completely empty for the seasons of darkness. The only answer they had was, victory will come if, if you do this, then this will happen. So here, try this if, try this if, try this if, because if you do the right if, you're surely going to get the right then. Mm. And I didn't, and I couldn't, and um, it actually was counterproductive. I mean, I, mm -hmm. to this day, I love those people. I know they were doing their best. They were offering what they had. Yeah. But our tradition didn't have access to mm -hmm. other metaphors of God. 
didn't have access to other ways of thinking about the journey that was not triumphalist. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm very lucky because at, at that time, I was in seminary getting a master's in spiritual formation, and the only reason that I even knew what spiritual direction was was because I had had a class on it a year before. You know, so... Handy. Yes. God, God was all over it, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, I had, you know, that one person. And to this day, I still laugh. Um, whenever the song it is well with my soul Mm -hmm. like whenever that's a hymn right i hated that song (laughs) like i wanted to burn every single page in the hymnal when i was going through my stuff like (laughs) you you know just yeah i sat there with my arms crossed (laughs) i was like no i'm not doing this that's right (laughs) because my soul is not well Mm -hmm. there is nothing well with my soul at all if i could change the words then Mm -hmm. you know that would be great but yeah. It sucks with my soul does not have the same <laughs> ring. <laughs> no, it doesn't any at all. Yeah. Like mm. Yeah, or great is thy faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My my thought was, you know, bite me, God. <laughs> Just, you know, get stuffed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, these kind of conversations I love to have because it's foreign to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, oh, well, no, I'm just, God has always spoken to me, and I've never felt that. And it's like, well, God might be that for you, but you also need to know that there's the other side of things. And so. So there was a phrase going around when I was younger. It was God in the darkness. And I interpreted the meaning of that as when it's dark, which will inevitably get, then you will find God. You will find light. It didn't prepare me for the idea that in the darkness, God would still be darkness. In the, in the emptiness, God would still be silent. And that that was okay. And that there was something very profound in that as well. I, I didn't have a construct to expect that. I only had the construct that I, once, I found, once I finally found God, then light would resume and goodness would resume and consolation would resume. I didn't have the idea that God would be present as silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which you know, I think in a lot of ways led you to where you were at. I think you said in 2007 you decided to change how you were speaking about God from mind of Christ yeah. to universal mind. So, like many ministers, I was keenly aware that uh, the church was in decline, the church was dying, and my experience of church had been a very primal good in my life. Um, I had found deep meaning along the way. I'd had rich experiences that I associated with this spiritual tradition. And so it grieved me that the church would be in such a sorry state of affairs. And so, like a lot of people, I was batting around trying to find out what's the problem, what's going on. What's... I knew that my children would not have a meaningful experience within the church context um, if things didn't change. And so I'd started a, 
a journey to um, try and figure out what was going on. And it started by trying to fix church. You know, we were too program driven or we were too formal or we were too uh, wrapped up in empty rituals. And so we needed to fix the practices. But after time, I realized that we needed to fix the story we were telling ourselves because our behaviors were bad, still are. But our behaviors were rooted in our instincts and uh, our instincts are what was betraying us. And, uh, but then our instincts are rooted in our story, in the metaphors that we have for this spiritual life. And so we had a story of God that on the surface said God is love, but under the surface says, but if, if you don't do this, then God will be there to whack you. And so and we had a, a surface story that talked of grace and love, but we had a subtext underneath that that was very different. And so I started to look at our story. What is the story that we tell of God? And that, my, my uh, interest has always been in history, so I went back and started looking in our history of ways that we have talked about the spiritual life and the spiritual journey, and I was doing that for myself. But then when I came here to start this church, I started asking all the folks in our community if they knew a college kid, <laughs> and if they would hook me up with their college kid, and I said, I'd buy them lunch. So I went out with these college kids, and I started with this question, why is Christianity irrelevant to you? And some kids didn't know enough about Christianity to know what it was, so I'd tell them about why it was so irrelevant to them. <clears throat> and then I would say, I will buy you another lunch if you'll let me go do some reading and come back and try and tell you a Christian story and you tell me if that's irrelevant. And so I, uh, I did that, and I was reading outside of the influence. Well, I think one of the great gifts that Brian McLaren, who's a well-known writer, gave to me was to help me recognize how much our tradition has been influenced by Rome. And if I go back to, you know, because again, history was my degree and all the things that I've studied, if I go back and realize, oh my goodness, this is a Roman construct, not a Christian construct. Oh, this is a, this sensibility comes directly from the adopting of the Greco-Roman worldview. Oh, this is where all else comes from. It's so helpful. And so I started looking outside of Rome. What are the Eastern Orthodox uh, tradition? What is it? What, the, what does that tradition tell us? What does the uh, Coptic tradition tell us? Uh, way up north above Adrian's Wall, what does the Celtic tradition tell us? I mean, in all these different ways of being Christian, even within Rome, the, the desert fathers and mothers who tried to get away from Rome to, uh, to follow a way of being, and within the, the, the monastic communities where some of that tradition then filtered through and was maintained. And there's this vast swath of Christian tradition that isn't influenced by Rome, and um, my goodness, what a different story we tell. So I'd go back to these college kids and I would talk to, to them about a Christian tradition rooted in contemplative practice, rooted in mystery, rooted in non-certitude, in non-fixed narratives about God and salvation and whatever. And, and I would say, so tell me about this Christian story. I'm not trying to persuade you, just I wanna use you as a focus group. What do you think? What does your brain do when you hear this? And almost to a person, they would say, that's a very relevant story. And that is a very meaningful way of being Christian. Um, but you can't fool me. That's not Christian. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, but yes, 
That's the thing is, it is. We've, uh, we've taken this broad spectrum that we could call our Christian heritage, and we've narrowed it down, moved it slightly to the right, and said, that little box there, that is Christian. And if we jump out of that box, it feels like heresy, but it really is not even, it's still right of center. You know, I mean, it's, it's part of our tradition. So I did that for a long time while at the same time on Sundays speaking to a traditional, relatively conservative version of the Christian faith uh, congregation. And I would try and talk to them about the things that I was sharing with these college kids in language that wouldn't be too upsetting for them. And over time, that just got increasingly difficult, increasingly difficult. And uh, then on one Sunday, I was getting, or Saturday, I was getting ready for a Sunday lesson. And I came to a term that I was going to use. I don't remember the context I was going to use it in, but it was the mind of Christ. It comes from something Paul had written. And, um, and I realized if I say that to all the church folks, they're going to be very comfortable. They're going to feel really uh, right there with me. But if I were to say that to those college kids that I meet with, they would just glaze over. It would be an empty and meaningless construct. But if I said to them, the uh, universal mind, they would become curious. But if I said the universal mind to these church folks, they would think I was a new age crazy. <laughs> and so I thought, all right, well, so here's John's prologue in which he says, in the beginning was word. And that's such a big uh, word. It has such rich meaning. It can mean thought or idea, or it really could even mean mind. In the beginning was mind, and mind was with God, mind was of God, mind was around God, in God's, you know, the whole issue of prepositions gets all mixed up. So this idea of word is this universal reality. And then it showed up and walked among us. And if ever universal mind was a descriptor, that would be logos. So I thought, I, I could say universal mind. And I could do that and be right in line with the most conservative of uh, expositors, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but I just knew what was coming if I did that. <laughs> I'm like, Lord. And so it was not without pause. I stood up in my little office and I walked around. I did some breathing exercises and I prayed some prayers. And then I sat down and I typed out Universal Mind. And <clears throat> within... And I guess, really, in by doing that, I'd made the decision. I was going to talk to those college kids. Mm -hmm. And I did. it did comfort me that there was a church on every street corner for all the folks who understood the traditional language. And uh, so I started the journey of language deconstruction that had to do with metaphor deconstruction, that had to do with Christian narrative deconstruction, which is how can we access more than the last 500 years in the West of Christian heritage in order to tell our Christian story. What, what other metaphors can we use? What other language can we use? What other ways can we talk about God that fits into this quantum worldview where everything is relative, where uncertainty is baked into the system? And it turns out we'd have a treasure trove mm -hmm. of stuff. You know, we have this whole contemplative tradition that we kind of abandoned 500 years ago. We have these mystics that we kind of we didn't get rid of them. We just kind of didn't listen to them anymore. We were a little embarrassed by them. <laughs> yeah. 
I like to say we ignored them for yes. a while. Yeah. We're like, yes. mm, yeah, we're not going to go there with yeah. you right now. That was, was a little less than benign ignoring. Yeah, it was intentional. <laughs> yes, that's right. And so I started talking to these kids in language that they could understand because the contemplative now has always been on the fringe of our tradition. The institution was kind of the, the mainstream, but now they've rejected institution or they've rejected these, uh, the certitude on which institution is built. And so I think it's time for the contemplative to become the mainstream because it's our heritage and people who live in this worldview of relativity and uncertainty can relate to and find the divine in the midst of that. And so I started using that kind of language. And, you know, so within a year of that universal mind lesson, about 40% of our congregation had left, you know, but 240% have come because it is, you know, we are not less spiritual as a culture. We, I mean, there is the, the ragged edge of atheism that's kind of making a, 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 some noise, but we aren't really less spiritual. We're really just less Newtonian. We're less fixed in our certitude and confidence. And so if our religion can be told, which it can, by the way, in that language, it's very relevant to people. And uh, so that's kind of what I've done with that universal mind thing. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate your time and taking you know, part of your day and spending it with myself as well as those you know, that have journeyed down here with me. Um, for those of you who would like to go out and purchase Doug's book, his last name is Hammock, spelled H-A-M-M-A-C-K, and it's called The Retelling. Rethinking Our Story. Oh my goodness, I need, I will get this right eventually. And the subtitle is, Can We Still Be Christian in the Quantum Era? Okay, Rethinking Our Story, Can We Still Be Christian in the Quantum Era? Yeah. Okay, and then earlier you had mentioned that you have another book coming out. Uh, I'm doing the final draft now. It's Rethinking Sex Education. Okay. The subtitle is uh, The Wisdom of Religion Without the Crazy. <laughs> Very nice. And you can Google the North Raleigh Community Church to see how they do what they do, as well as, as said earlier, purchase you know Doug's book on Amazon or wherever good books are sold. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for listening, and we will get back at you in a couple weeks with our next episode. Thanks for listening to the Waterworks Ministries podcast. Waterworks Ministries is a ministry of empowerment, knowledge, and nurture. We provide spiritual direction, coaching, and training in various topics, including prayer, anti-human trafficking, and discipleship. For more information on Waterworks Ministries, you can go to our website at www.waterworksministries.org or you can find us on Facebook and just search Waterworks Ministries. We're the only one. Again, thanks for listening and have a blessed day.